Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, we've got a great guest lined up. I've got Rachel Schindler of Peds and Pods, and she's going to talk to us about isopods. Now, isopods in and of themselves have become kind of an entity really unto themselves. There's a very, very large and continuing to grow isopod hobby, as well as other inverts like millipedes, etc., things like that. But as far as we go in the frog community and really in the, um, you know, in the exotics community in general, we tend to use isopods primarily as a cleanup crew, in addition to springtails and other microfauna and things like that. So I'm really happy because Rachel works pretty much exclusively with isopods and millipedes and a couple of other species that we can generally consider parts of cleanup crews. And she's been kind enough to come on the show. She's going to kind of give us the ins and outs of isopods, millipedes, you know, what they're like as cleanup crews, what they're like just being kept on their own and pretty much anything else that we're going to come up with. So, Rachel, I want to thank you for being on the show with me. Welcome. How are you doing? Hey, Dan. Good. How are you? My pleasure. My pleasure. So, why don't we, let's get into it. Tell us your story. What were your first experiences like with with arthropods or or animals in general? I mean, what led you from there to where you are now? Yeah. So, uh, I've been keeping um, reptiles and amphibians and and bugs in general, um, I want to say since I was like five years old. my mom is allergic to everything and uh i love animals i always wanted to have pets so that's that's what we kept um so yeah so i started keeping real young um you know a lot of different uh lizards and frogs and stuff like that and then you know always raising like praying mantises and raising butterflies and stuff over the summer so that's that's really how i got started I mean, what, what drew you to arthropods, though, as opposed to, like, some people will start out with kind of like a mixed bag. Like, when I was a kid, I started, the first animals I really kept, like, formally were amphibians, but then I branched out into reptiles. I kept birds. I kept mammals. But mm-hmm. um, amphibians were always just kind of the, the, you know, the comfort zone for me. I mean, what, what about arthropods that really drew you to them? So really for me, it was, it was the millipedes. Um, they have the cutest little faces. If you ever look at millipedes, they're just adorable little faces. So I started keeping those, um, like as an adult, I started keeping millipedes. I happened to find some in, in a local pet store. I found some Florida ivories and just brought them home and set them up. And, and really from there, um, I got some other species. And then I found out that there were really cool pill bugs that you could keep too. And then everything just kind of, you know, spiraled out of control from there. It just kind of like escalated into like a full blown. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you have your own business, Peds and Pods, right? Can you tell us how that started and like what you're up to now? Yeah. Yeah. So I started Pet Peds and Pods in 2019. And I started it because I, I had the idea in mind that I wanted to, to get it going for probably a couple of years before. Um, started building up my collection, you know, getting reading and everything. And then I finally got to the point where, um, you know, I had enough variety. And I started going to one of our local shows, the, the Cleveland Reptile Show. I started vending there. Um, and then since then, we have four local shows that we vend every month. Um, we're going to be going to the North American Reptile Breeders Conference out by Chicago in June. And I started selling online uh, last year in March when everything shut down. Um, so it's really in, in like the last year, it's it's been a lot of growth for the business. With um, the situation with COVID, I mean, has that mm-hmm. increased the demand for isopods? Um, 
I think it has. Uh, I know a lot of people that started keeping them during the pandemic. You know, we have a couple different kinds of isopod keepers. You've got the people that, um, you know, keep them for bioactive setups, and you have the people that keep them just to keep them. And um, I'm in some groups on Facebook, and a lot of people really did get into them during the pandemic just as, you know, something low-key to take care of and, you know, set something up that, that they could enjoy but but not have to put a lot of time and effort into. Um, so I think that has increased demand somewhat. And then also you have people that are, you know, using that time to set up, you know, nice bioactive setups and things like that. I Yeah, I, what I've heard from other hobbyists in, in, you know, some of the reptile world and even like people who build custom reptile enclosures is the demand for certain things since the pandemic started. I mean, I'm sure it's a combination of demand and also supply being mm-hmm. limited, but it seems like the demand for pretty much everything in the animal hobbies has like it exploded to the point where it's, I mean, some of the frog vendors I've talked to, like they have people on waiting lists for months for, for tadpoles yeah. and enclosures are in short supply. And I mean, I know just casually me browsing, looking around at people's sites for isopods and whatnot haven't been as easy to come by as they have in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What's it like doing shows? I mean, being, you know, being, a, being an isopod enthusiast, someone who sells isopods, I mean, what's it like? being at a reptile show as opposed to say, I mean, I really don't know if we have arachnid shows or invert shows here in the U S but what's it like being at a reptile show selling just, just arthropods? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, so, and it's funny too, because when I started vending, I really didn't know how it was going to go. And, you know, we'd go and we'd set up our table and my, my husband vends with me. This is the we that I'm talking about. So, you know, you set up the table and we've got all our animals out there and, you know, when we started, people would come up to the table and they go, what is this? And then you have to explain to them, you know, well, this is, you know, your cleanup crew for bioactives. What's that? And, you know, people really didn't know what it was that we were doing. And since then, now I just have people come up to my table with a list and they go, okay, I need this, this, and this for these enclosures. And what do you recommend for this? So it's, it's been a, a very quick turnaround I think for people and and that's not you know just because of us I think just the hobby in general has really started going towards bioactive but yeah vending at shows is a lot of fun um I really enjoy talking to people I enjoy talking to people that are enthusiastic about the same things that I'm enthusiastic about and it is it's a lot of fun you know we get a lot of people that come up and they say you know hey I'm looking to set up my animal you know in this enclosure but i don't know anything else about what i need and then you know we can help them out right then and there to figure out everything that they need to make a successful uh, bioactive setup for their animals which is really fun that's kind of going into my next question and i i kind of wanted to start off with i guess frame this in terms of what most of us in the in the amphibian world would kind of the way we would start keeping isopods which would sort of be in the context of cleanup crews can you, can you give us a rundown of some of the best species that would be used as cleanup crews? And I, it doesn't necessarily have to be like dart frogs per se. I mean, it could be pretty much anything. I mean, are there certain species that you would recommend in terms of cleanup crews and what types of situations you would use them in? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's going to depend on what kind of environment you're setting up and what kind of animal you're keeping. Um, you want to select an isopod that's going to do well, you know, in, in the level of humidity and the temperature and everything. But you also want to select something that is going to be sized correctly so they don't just get eaten immediately um, if you've got something that's going to eat bugs, basically. 
So my number one recommended isopod that I recommend for, you know, the vast majority of situations, uh, Priscillionides prunosis, which are commonly known, people know them as the, the powdered isopods, uh, powder orange, powder blue, and then there's a few other color morphs. Um, they're really nice because they're soft-bodied, so if they do get eaten, it's, you know, totally fine and safe. Um, they're real good tank mates. They don't bother anybody. Um, and they're good in just like a wide range of environments. You can keep them in a 100% humidity enclosure with darts, or you can keep them in a hot, arid environment with bearded dragons, as long as you give them a moist place to retreat to. So those are those are probably my favorites, um, just to use, you know, basic cleanup crew. Um, you've also got the, the dwarf isopod species, which are nice if you just need something, you know, small and unobtrusive. We use those a lot for like crested geckos, um, especially if they're already set up in something. You can't give them any time to establish. The dwarfs are nice. They'll just stay burrowed all the time. You'll never see them, but they, you know, still clean up poop. Giant canyon, uh, Percelio dilatatus. Um, those guys are really good in arid setups um, as well as the pronosis. The, the giant canyons are actually even better. They're bigger, so you just have to make sure that whatever you're using them with, you know, isn't just going to snack on them right away. And then Cubaris marina, I really like for real high humidity environments. We use those a lot for like um, Pac-Man frogs and stuff like that, where it's just like, you know, wet and soppy and dirty all the time. Um, so those are probably my top ones. There's a lot of other species um, depending on what you're using them for and, and what you're looking for visually. And you just kind of have to pay attention to you know, growth and reproduction rates to make sure that you're picking something that's going to work with the animals you're keeping them with. I started keeping dwarf whites and I introduced them into, uh, I think it was, I think it was two of my enclosures. I did two of them just as a trial. And it's interesting, like, just like you said, I never saw them until finally yeah. one day I, I dug up a piece of cork bark. I was moving some plants around and there was like maybe four or five of them just sort of came right out. Yeah. Yeah. And the dwarf whites are really nice, but it's also something um, isopod keepers, <laughs> isopod breeders hate them because they are notorious for teleporting into other enclosures and then taking over. So you have to be real careful about making sure that you don't have them, um, you know, near your other isopod like bins or enclosures in such a way that they can potentially get out and get into the other bins. And then like I keep mine on a totally different side of my room that I have all my bugs in and then you know I've got like mesh and everything to keep them in and then like even when you work between them and, and another enclosure like you know do use the same tools wash your hands stuff like that because they they can really wreak havoc in, in other breeder bins really so they just completely yeah. will out compete others yeah. wow that's wild yeah but they're great in bioactive setups like if, if you're looking for something to just go and clean up poop and you know you'll never see those guys are great what about the lifestyle of, of isopods? I, the, the first culture that I got a couple of years ago of dwarf whites, I got maybe, I want to say 20 of them in the culture, and I kind of let them sit for maybe a month just to see what would happen. And they didn't really explode population-wise. I mean, is there like a general life cycle for isopods, or does it vary by species? It definitely varies by species. Yeah. Um, you know, so like the general life cycle is, you know, your adults, they, they actually, um, they lay eggs in a pouch on their stomachs. Um, it's called a marsupium. And so then the, the eggs hatch in that pouch. They carry the babies around on their tummies for a while. Um, you can tell when you're, you've got like a, a female that's going to have babies because she gets this big yellow spot. And then as they grow, you can actually see the individual babies in there, which is pretty cool. 
they eventually drop those babies. Um, and then, you know, the babies then at that point are self-sufficient, you know, down in the substrate, you, they're usually burrowed down pretty good at that point. And then as they grow, they get more bold and they come out and walk around and, you know, eventually become, you know, full adult isopods. But a lot of them are going to breed better during warmer months. Some of them are seasonal. Um, not a lot of them are seasonal. It's mostly the the big Spanish isopods um, that are seasonal. But I mean, I definitely, I'll get booms. You know, we've got temperature fluctuations and, and I'll always have more in the summer um, when it's warmer, you know, in this room. So, it, I mean, temperature can, can play a difference, but that's not to say that you won't get breeding your round out of a lot of them. Um, so I think it really just depends on, you know, resources, time of year, temperature. And also, I mean, how many females you have. With the dwarf whites, I'm pretty positive those are actually parthenogenic. But for the most part, you do need male and female for all the isopods. So it just depends on your distribution of uh, males and females that you have as well. How long does it take from, I guess, from egg stage? Well, it's not really an egg, but from, I guess, juvenile stage, maybe would say, to, to adulthood. How long does it take them to become sexually mature? Uh, well, that's a great question, and that also depends greatly on the species of isopods. Some of them um, have to be a lot bigger than other ones. I've got some um, that at a quarter of adult size, they're already reproducing, and then I have other ones where, you know, they've got to be like three quarters. So it really, again, just depends on the type. And then obviously growth rate, you know, can be drastically different across the different species, you know, some of your, um, like the prunosis, the, the powders that we were talking about earlier, um, those guys are some of the uh, fastest reproducing ones, whereas some of the uh, armadillidium species can be real slow. So it really just depends. I sourced um, a couple of native isopods from my backyard, actually, just to kind of see. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to kind of conduct a little experiment. I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but I got a female. And sh and within maybe like a week, I had maybe like twenty babies running around in this little amic box enclosure. But they kind of matured out, and I never got any more reproduction since. I you know, that was like maybe like a year ago. That's interesting. I would definitely have expected you to have gotten babies from that. Yeah, I was I was surprised. I figured with the amount that I had, I would have had kind of a you know a booming population, but. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the, the real reason that I collected them was I'd heard a couple of different stories. I mean, horror stories really about just different species of isopod becoming, I guess, aggressive, you could say, towards the primary inhabitant of the vivarium. In, in particular, I'd heard people, I mean, everybody knows out there, I also, I keep inverts, I keep tarantulas, and I'd heard people saying that they had introduced isopods as a cleanup crew into their tarantula enclosure, and then while the tarantula was molting, the isopods sort of swarmed it and then that was the end of the tarantula. So I yeah. just want, I mean, I took a, a dubia roach that I had, I just, that one of my animals just didn't eat and I put it in there and these guys were on this thing within like 30 seconds and then it was just oh, yeah. like dust. Yeah. yeah. I mean, protein's a very important part of their diet, um, regardless of the species. Um, there are certain things that I will never recommend you keep isopods with. Um, millipedes is a big one because, you know, they are soft and vulnerable for such a long time. Um, pretty much anything, if it's going to molt and it's going to be soft and vulnerable on the ground, 
I mean, I don't recommend using isopods with um, some things you you can use them with, but you want to really make sure that you pick the right species. Um, I do know a lot of people that use isopods in with their tarantulas. I know people that use them with scorpions and like, you know, things that, that stay up, you know, our boreal species are going to be okay as long as they're not molting on the ground. But that is definitely something you really have to keep in mind. Um, there are certain species like Priscilla labus, which people, um, the dairy cow morph is super popular. Those guys are big, they are protein hungry, and they're just kind of monsters. Like they will eat anything that doesn't get away from them. Um, so those I don't recommend in anything, you know, any other inverts. I wouldn't keep them with small frogs, but those guys are great for like um, snakes and monitors, stuff like that. You know, you're big animals because they can just destroy large amounts of poop in a very short amount of time. So it just, it just depends on, on what you're using them with. And then, you know, generally like the Percellar species tend to be a lot more protein hungry than like the Armadillidiums or like your Hubaris marina, stuff like that. So, and then like the, the Pronosis are really good too. I know people that use those with, um, with like hermit crabs and stuff like that. But um, I've definitely, if you're using isopods with something that molts, make sure you're providing supplemental protein at all times. I mean, I, I give mine protein once a week when I'm breeding them separately. So I would keep that schedule up um, with your cleanup crew and then just, you know, pay real close attention when they're molting just to make sure that, you know, nobody's bothering them. But yeah, definitely, definitely something to keep in mind. When it comes to cleaning things up, I mean, I, I generally use, I've been, I've actually been using springtails for like 20 years. I started yeah. with native springtails back in the early 2000s, sort of by accident. And now they've kind of, I guess, become the standard, but mm -hmm. do isopods, will they compete with springtails for like the same type of organic matter or do they just sort of gravitate towards like poop and dead stuff? Yeah, so they, they really work well together because your springtails are going to eat like your mold and your fungus and they'll go after, you know, you'll see them on the poop, you'll see them on, you know, decaying matter. But the isopods are going to eat like the, the bigger waste. So they're going to really break down the poop. The springtails aren't going to break it down fast enough. Um, so they really work well together. You know, you've got the springtails, they break down the mold and fungus. Um, they will also, because of what they eat, they will help outcompete um, mites and fungus gnats. And then isopods are going to take care of that larger waste. Yeah, fungus gnats are definitely not something that you want to have. Yes, yeah. yes. I was I was having a conversation with someone about about microfauna, and I explained to him. I said, really, the reason I said when you're using it in, in especially in a high humidity or a moist substrate type of situation is that you don't want these forward flies, and mm -hmm. the, oh, the yeah. springtails really just serve the function of keeping the forward flies out. So at the very minimum. That that in and of itself makes them beneficial. Absolutely, yeah. When it, when it comes to protein, if you're just breeding them in a in a, in a I guess a culture or a vivarium environment, whatever you want to call it, what like what are you feeding your isopods to give them? I guess a balanced diet. I guess in addition to protein. Yeah. So so their main diet is always going to be uh, leaf litter. Leaf litter is their main diet, and then I supplement with um which is fish food flakes i actually i discovered i could buy like 15 pound buckets on amazon which was a, just an amazing discovery so that's what i give mine um it's just, it's just very easy to give them you know you can just get you know a little bit for the ones that don't eat a lot or you can get a lot in there if you've got a big colony or they're they're real protein hungry 
And then you can supplement um, like fresh veggies and stuff. I don't do that a lot. Um, I usually stick with like potatoes or carrots um, because those don't go uh, gross super quick. In the bigger colonies, it's less of a concern, but, um, you know, I don't want to have to go through all my bins and then go through all my bins again to take supplemental food out um, before, you know, it starts attracting mites and other stuff. So, so really just leaf litter, um, some sort of protein, um, whether that's uh, fish food or you can do like freeze-dried shrimp or minnows or, you know, if you keep other bugs and you've got, you know, dead roaches or crickets or whatever, you can throw those in with them too. Um, so it's pretty easy. That's what I ended up doing with some old doobie roaches that uh, yeah. my, my bearded dragon refused. I just threw them in there and then like, I mean, this wasn't a massive, massive colony. This is maybe like 20 adults at the time, but they, they wiped it out. It was, it yeah. was pretty, it was actually kind of intimidating to watch because they just, they just <laughs> dismantled it. Yeah. 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 They're, they're very good at their jobs. What about calcium? Do you, I mean, they're crustaceans, right? So you have yeah, to submit yeah. a, a supplement with calcium, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, cuddle bone, eggshells, limestone, uh, oyster shells, anything like that are good. Um, I, I'm a big fan of cuddle bone because um, you can just kind of break it up and give them little pieces. Um, and, and with the cuddle bone, too, it's it's pretty cool because you can, like, see as they eat that piece down. And then when it gets just to that back shell, then, you know, it's time to add more. That's got to be pretty cool. It is, Yeah. As far as substrates, do you have a preference in terms of substrate? I mean, I've seen some people use cocoa fiber. I've seen some people use topsoil. What, what would mm-hmm. what would you recommend someone who just wants to, I guess, start a start a, a colony? What would you recommend? See, so you, you really do have a lot of options. Um, the nice thing about isopods is they're not super dependent on that substrate for nutrition as long as you do have everything that they need. So if you've got a nice layer of leaf litter and you're supplementing them, um, you can keep them on just cocoa fiber. Since I breed them, I like to use something that is nutritious all the way through. So I use the Ligardi substrate that's got, you know, decaying wood and leaf matter mixed into it. And then I think it's like peat and and some other things. But if you're, um, you know, if you don't have a huge colony, it's not as important. Um, The main thing with the substrate is you want it to hold moisture. Because, you know, they, they actually do have gills that they breathe with, even though they're terrestrial. So they have to have that humidity at all times to be able to breathe. Um, so you want something that, you know, you want a deep enough substrate that's going to hold moisture. When I keep them separately in bins, I keep one end moist and one end dry. And then that lets them self-regulate that humidity that they need. And then if you're setting them up like in a vivarium, um, really that substrate is just going to be dependent on what you're setting your vivarium up for. So if you're keeping like a temperate or tropical environment, usually ABG substrate is going to be kind of the go-to for that. And then um, if it's a more arid environment, um, it's just going to be whatever you need to have in there to be safe for your primary inhabitant. And then adding your leaf litter and and hiding places and stuff for your isopods. Um, And you're going to be good to go. So it really just depends on how you're keeping them. So for more arid primary species, like let's just say, I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, I'm not a huge reptile person, but I have a bearded dragon who is, it's primarily, it's a dry enclosure. So mm-hmm. if I were to incorporate isopods, what would you do you, in that situation? You would just provide a humid area for them to sort of hang out in and they would just sort of come mm-hmm. out and forage. 
like at night, at night or okay okay yeah. i got you yep. yeah yeah you just you have to be really diligent about keeping that area moist for them though because they can't dry out completely so either you know have substrate that's deep enough that you can keep some of those bottom layers moist at all times or have you know a piece of cork bark over something that you keep moist and you know you always spray it down you know once or twice a day or whatever to keep that moist um but yeah i mean I, a lot of people do successfully keep them in you know you've been bearded dragon setups where it is hot and dry Got it. I, I've just, I've heard people say that, you, you know, you can keep them in this hundred percent. I'm like, I, I can't imagine that you could just keep them in this arid, completely zero humidity environment. I mean, there has to be something there. I mean, yeah, it's just no, like you, you, just you absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely have to keep that for him. Yeah. What about the, uh, how do I put this? How much waste can X amount of isopods process? And I'll, I'll just, I'll, let me give you my, my, my rationale here. Uh, my dart frogs make, a, you know, they make a, a fairly decent amount of waste. They they poop constantly. Mm-hmm. And my larger species, I generally spot clean. I'll just kind of remove the bulk of it, we'll say. But I've I've always been curious. Like, say you have, um, let's 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 just pick an let's just pick an average size species. Let's just say a, a horned frog, like an Argentine horned frog, Pac-Man frog. Uh, whatever people are calling them. Uh, say you have one of those that, that, you know, passes a stool and it's, it's huge. Like it always is with them. How many isopods would it need to clear that out in the course of an evening? In the course of an evening? Well, I mean, it's going to depend on the kind of isopod that you have. Some of them, you know, you could probably have 20 of them and have them take it on in an evening. And then some of them, you know, you could have 20 and it might take them a couple of days. Um, so really, I mean, so you're if you've got Percellia species in there or Percellionides pyrenosis, which are the powders, those guys are going to be able to break it down a lot faster than like your Armadillidium species. Yeah, so I'm just going to keep answering your question, but it depends on the species. Gotcha, but, gotcha. Yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm trying to make sense of it because I don't really know too much about them. I I've heard different people's takes on things, and. Uh, some of the stuff that I've heard from people seems believable and some of it seems a little odd. Like I've had people, I mean, not to get too out, outside of the, the amphibian world here, but I, I also keep blood pythons. And mm-hmm. when they go, they go like once or twice a year. And when they do, right. it's just horrific. So I've had people, I mean, I keep them, I keep mine on craft paper just for a number of reasons. They get, they can get messy. And when they do, it's horrible, but I personally don't trust any size cleanup crew of isopods to be able to take that and get that under control in a timely fashion. I mean, is there a limit to how large of a species you can keep with the cleanup crew and expect it to function? Yeah. And I mean, something like that's going to be really difficult because the idea is that the primary inhabitant is providing like regular waste for your cleanup crew. So your population is expanding based on that available resource right so if you've got something that's only producing weight a couple or waste a couple times a year that's going to be really hard to maintain that population you're not going to have a huge population unless you're actively supplementing them in which case you know yeah you might have some thousands of them in there and i mean they could probably move some serious waste but i would still i mean for something a couple times a year i would probably just want to just clean that up myself you know yeah that's been my 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 decision i live in perpetual fear of that because when it happens it's just 
it's just it's just hideous. But all right, yeah. enough about enough about poop. Um, <laughs> I mean, I talk about poop all the time because you know that's I I make things that eat poop. So that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> did the isopropyl, and this may sound like an odd question, but well, before we get completely off of poop, do isopods have a a preference for? I can't believe I'm saying this, but like, let's just say that you have an animal that's a, an obligate carnivore that it eats nothing but meat, and that's all that it passes, as opposed to an animal that is a vegetarian, primarily vegetarian. Like, say you had a, a tortoise species that was eating primarily grasses and vegetables, and you had, say, like a monitor that was eating meat. Does it matter to the isopods, like, what it is? I mean, will they clean up, like, a meaty poo more than a veggie poo? Well, you know, and that's the great thing about isopods is because that is all part of their diet. So they're not, they're really not picky. So they're going to clean that up regardless of what they were eating. Um, and I think, you know, them needing that protein as part of their diet is really beneficial when you do have things that are you know eating meat and stuff like that but they also you know they're not going to say no to a nice cucumber so um yeah so they're they're going to clean that up no matter what what about in terms of them being secondary feeders because i i was reluctant to put any kind of isopods in with my my larger frogs like my, my phylobates species because they'll they'll eat medium-sized crickets. They'll take out three-quarter-inch crickets. And I was concerned about them sort of wiping out the isopods. Will they be a food source for some animals, or do they get left alone? Yeah, no, they, they absolutely can be. Um, and some of the, the faster reproducing species people actually do use as feeders. So, like, I have a box turtle that I keep isopods in with, and I am pretty much constantly replenishing his enclosure because it's his life mission to find and eat all his isopods but the protoses have done pretty well in there um like i've been able to get them established to the point where they're actually like reproducing a little bit so you know and and it's not really a problem if they eat them as long as they don't eat all of them if you can get your cleanup crew into an enclosure before your primary inhabitant goes into it and let them get established for a while, that's ideal. Um, because once you get them to the point where they're reproducing and you know they're just kind of inundated into the substrate, um, it's going to be hard for your primary to just wipe them all out in one go. And I always also tell people, like, if you're worried about them getting eaten, keep a side culture, you know, keep a bin of whatever isopod you're using and then just add them in as you need to. They're they're high in calcium, so it's, you know, somewhat beneficial for them to, to eat them if they do. And it's certainly not going to hurt them. But yeah, you definitely uh, you don't want to get something that's like real expensive and throw them in there and have 10 of them and then lose them all in one day. You definitely don't want to do that. Yeah, I can't imagine. I've seen some of the ones that are really pricey. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a bit. But what about mixing species? Would you recommend someone like mix two different types or three or four different types of isopods in one enclosure? Or is that just kind of a bad idea? Um, so that's, that's a question that comes up a lot. And keep in mind that you've got different species, but you've also got different color morphs. So different color morphs of the same species can always go in together, but you are eventually going to lose those individual morphs, you know, over a couple generations. But some people enjoy doing that. Um, different species, um, if you have a big enough enclosure, you can do it. But you really want to make sure that you pick different species that have very similar growth rates and reproduction rates because eventually one is going to outcompete the other. Um, 
So there's no reason you can't try it, but be prepared to end up with only one. Okay. That sounds, I'm not a big fan of mixing anything. I don't, Yeah, I don't believe in yeah. mixing and cohabbing and any of that stuff, but I was just, I mean, it's over, it's easy to overlook something as simple as a cleanup crew. Just say, ah, oh, they don't matter. They just throw them all in. But I mean, like what you said before about the dwarf whites, that was actually pretty. pretty yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, that's a really good example. But I mean, there's some things where, you know, they really can, if, if you've got a big enough enclosure, they can coexist pretty well. But, you know, general, general rule is going to be, you know, stick with one species um, and your springtails if, if you're using them as a cleanup crew. Which species are you working with now? I mean, we touched on a, a couple before in terms of just being cleanup crew uh, species. But, I mean, in general, how many species are you working with? And can you tell us a little bit about some of them? Yeah. So according to my spreadsheet that I have open right now, that I am pretty sure is fairly accurate, I have uh, 62 varieties of isopods. Um, and I say varieties because a lot of them are different, you know, same species, different color morphs, things like that. But yeah, I've got, I have a lot of different kinds. I've got, you know, a lot of the, the basic cleaner crews. I have some of the, like the, the mid-level, you know, could be a cleaner, cleanup crew, could be, you know, just, just a collector type. And then I have some of the, the really cool um, definitely don't put this in with your, with your other animals and just keep this separate, um, sort of isobods. I will say some of my favorites, people always ask me what my favorites are and my favorites are the zebras, um, the Armadillidium maculatum. We've got just the classic black and white striped ones. Um, there's, there's a yellow morph that's really cool where they're, um, black and yellow instead of black and white. And then there's like a, a high white version where you got more white than black. Um, so those are really fun. I am working on a line right now because with the, the zebras, a lot of times um, that striping's not real clean. Like you have um, like breaks in the stripes. So I've got a, a colony right now that I'm working on where I'm just breeding them specifically to have just like really nice clean stripes on them that I'm very excited about. That's pretty cool. I never would have even thought of, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but I never would have even thought that you could selectively breed these for color patterns. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a huge part of this hobby. Um, there are species where, you know, you can have tons of different color morphs of them, um, different color morphs, different patterning. And people have been selectively breeding these for a long time. Um, and some of them even occur like in nature. Like if you go outside um, around here, uh, Priscilla scaber is a real common species and I find calicos out in my yard all the time and they're, you know, normally their, their wild type is gray, but we get the, the calico morph out here and then we'll get orange ones. Armadillidium mesatum is another one that gets like, um, they're traditionally gray, but they will naturally throw like peach and purple and orange variants as well. And you can isolate all of those. Yeah. So it's, it's. That's a big part of the hobby is is isolating those those color morphs. Is there any benefit in nature to having those color morphs? And like, will you see, like, let, let's just say that you have, I mean, you mentioned it's P. Scaber, right? I can't remember the, the genus mm -hmm. name, but uh, say you have, say you have 20, 20 square miles, okay? And let's just say out of that 20 square miles, maybe there is a little isolated population of P. Scaber that's cut off by, I don't know, say uh, a body of water or whatever. Will they just sort of naturally evolve into their own locale, like with their own color mm -hmm. morphs? Really? Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. And actually some of the some of the morphs are morphs that were selectively bred and some of them are localities. So like some of them um Armenolidium vulgare, um, which again, traditionally gray one, but there's there's several localities. Uh, one of my favorite is the Punta Cana locality. And they're like these gorgeous like metal tones. Like you get like this um like kind of orange and, and pink, but with like this like almost um like rusty color over them that are really cool and and nobody made that like they're just that's how they naturally are in the Punta region do you ever get spontaneous mutations in your collection where something will just sort of show up uh i do but they're always super boring I, i've never gotten <laughs> something where i'm like oh that's awesome like i'm like wow that's that's less exciting than what you came from so i'm gonna be really excited one day when i get a a really cool uh mutation that i get to isolate do you think that a lot of these morphs and locales and these different colorations, I think that's part of the appeal as from the hobby aspect of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I always, I always uh, equate us with Pokemon trainers, right? So there's, there's lots of different types and you got to catch them all. So, you know, you get one and then you go, oh, my gosh, but it comes in different colors. And now I need all those colors. So there's definitely the, the collector aspect to the whole hobby as well. It seems like they lend themselves really well to being collectible because, I mean, their, their husbandry requirements are fairly simple. It's not like they really need anything that dramatic and you can keep them in fairly large numbers in fairly small containers. I mean, actually, that's yeah. what I meant to ask you. If you wanted to start a colony, what size container or bin, like what size would you recommend you start with? Um, I like six quart, six quart Sterilite bins. Um, really easy to work with. They're like a dollar here. Um, and it gives you enough room that you can get a good humidity gradient, but not so much room that if you only start with a few isopods, they can't find each other. Um, yeah, so the six quarts are nice. Um, there's a lot of debate on the, on different ventilation that goes into them. Almost all of mine, I don't keep with additional ventilation, um, but I'm in and out of my bins all the time. There's some exceptions, like the big Spanish species need a lot more ventilation. So those I do have in larger containers with actual intentional ventilation in them. But yes, yeah, six quart bins for people to start off uh, off with are good. I don't like going smaller than that unless you've got a dwarf species, uh, just because it is really hard to maintain that humidity gradient in them. Do you have a dedicated room that you keep your collection in? I do. I do. Um, one of our spare rooms has almost all the bugs in it. Almost all the bugs. And uh, yeah. I'm yeah, just pi I'm I, uh, just picturing this like massive room filled with isopods from around the world. It's not a very big room, but it is very full of bugs. Like just very full of bugs. I've got like racks along one wall, and I've just got bins and bins on bins. It's great. It's a good thing my husband also likes bugs. Yeah, I mean, we have bugs here too. We have bugs here too. <laughs> but I actually had. Oh, in addition to the frogs, I had one of my daughters friends uh she, her, one of her friends had come over for the fir really for the first time since the covid thing you know she had had a friend come over into the house and her father came to pick her up and he was you know he asked to see the frogs and i said okay i brought him downstairs and his jaw kind of dropped and hit the ground and i i kind of <laughs> realized i was like i think i might be making him uncomfortable here 
And my, my wife said to me, she goes, you didn't show him the tarantulas. I said, no, no, no. I said, we just got out of there. I said, I, I said, if he got that freaked out by like a terribilis or, or a tank, I said, I wasn't showing him anything else. So, um, yeah, that's probably yeah, call. yeah. So yeah. it's nice to have a spouse that's patient and understanding of your, uh, of yes. your passions in life. Does your husband, is he into, uh, isopods as well? Yeah. I mean, well, he, he helps me run. Uh, the business and uh you know when we started this like he didn't know anything about him but he's like yeah let's do it and so he always tells people it shows he, he says you know i'm the muscle i'm just here to carry things but he has taken some shows by himself like we've we've had somewhere we've had like a double show in one day so like i go to one and he goes to the other and then i can tell you with with great confidence that if you go to a show and just travis is there he will be able to get you everything that you need and tell you you know what what you need for that kind of environment which is which is pretty cool and you know I, i'll come up and at night he'll be up in the room with the lights out with a flashlight like looking for new babies and so he he enjoys it almost as much as i do i think how much time do you spend taking care of them in an average day or week or whatever um it's mostly um on like a weekly schedule um i try to get through all of my bins about once a week and i usually split it up over a couple of days so it's you know an hour or two here and there so it's not too bad. Um, I could probably get through all of my bins in two or three hours if I was not, you know, looking at them all and taking pictures and, you know, telling them how cute they are. Um, so it usually takes longer than that. But um, if I really wanted to, I could probably get through them in a couple hours. Have you ever had, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this, like um, with, with fruit flies, sometimes we'll have cultures just completely crash like for whatever reason mm -hmm. the air will be too dry you'll get a bad mix in media whatever i mean I, i've i haven't had that problem in a while but do you ever have issues where you'll just get like something get it gets into the into the bin and then everything just dies or or they're hard yeah, colony collapse yeah colony collapse is a real thing um with isopods um and i i'm gonna knock on wood when i say this i've only had a few major colony collapses the worst one I had um, were my rubber duckies, um, which are, if, if you're familiar with isopods and, and you've seen the rubber duckies, they're just like the cutest things ever. Um, but I had a really nice colony of those guys going. And then I actually moved them into a bigger bin because they were doing so well and they just crashed. And I, I still don't know what happened with them. So that was sad, but we've recovered from that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can you can have colony collapses for a number of reasons and you can have colony collapses for no apparent reason. So, yeah, it's just, you know, and, and the more you have in any given uh, enclosure, the more likely you're going to have a collapse as well, just because, you know, they're using more resources, um, you know, that sort of thing. Have you ever had it where one bin with one species will crash and then it'll spread to other species in the room? I have not. No. Have a, I mean, is that is that a thing that can happen or? It's more generally when you have like an environmental issues so like if it gets too hot or it gets too cold in the room um i i know a couple of people that have had just like catastrophic temperature events in their house and they just like lose their entire collection um but it's not usually like something happens in one bin and then triggers it in the other ones it's that's usually environmental or you know you have to be real careful too like um uh, if you're like spraying pesticides or anything like that, like really, uh, first of all, I don't like to spray pesticides, but if you're doing something outside, you know, make sure your windows are closed, stuff like that, because, you know, they are pretty sensitive to stuff like that. What about, um, what was I going to say? Um, 
well, how do, I mean, first of all, how do these species get into the hobby? Like, where do they come from? Because I, I mean, going back when I was younger, we would catch just native isopods in the backyard. You'd look at them in a jar for a little bit and hopefully let them go. If not, you know, they'd yeah. pretty much be dead by the next day. But how do they make their way into the hobby? So a lot of them are, um, you know, native North American species. Um, the the more rare and expensive ones, a lot of them are out of Thailand. Um, and there were a few people that were bringing them in in the last couple of years, um, you know, through U.S. Fish and Wildlife and USDA. So, you know, actually doing all the paperwork on, on both ends and bringing them in. So hopefully that continues. Um, I don't, I haven't seen much come over in the last year just due to COVID. Um, but yeah, there were, there were some guys that were doing it pretty regularly, um, bringing them in from Thailand, um, which is just really cool. That's how, you know, a lot of the, the real expensive, really cool species came over was, was those guys. Yeah. In the, not not i mean well the yeah i really should say it does include the amphibian hobby but the amphibian hobby the reptile hobby even the bird hobby at, at this point there's been a lot of legislation that is unfavorable to hobbyists and some of that can be attributed to well a lot of that can be attributed to just you know poor public perception as well as people's people being irresponsible but um some of that is also a function of bringing things here under questionable circumstances. And do you feel like the isopod hobby is doing the right thing to prevent? I mean, like, is the isopod hobby doing things the right way so that what happens to the reptile amphibian hobby doesn't happen to the invert hobby? Honestly, I don't think so. I think there's plenty of brown boxing happening. Um, there are some species here, like there's one from Cuba that I, I can't imagine came in legally. Um, that's something that I will never touch just because, I, you know, it's it's one of those things where you look at it and go, I just can't imagine how this came in legally. I probably shouldn't keep it. And I have some concerns um, about some things, you know, if they come over and they get into Canada and then they just happen to come down here and they haven't come through the proper channels. I, I think that happens fairly regularly. So it's just something to to kind of keep an eye out and make sure if you are buying, you know, new species that you're getting them from reputable sources. Yeah, I don't, I don't, the same thing happens in the dark frog hobby as well. And I just, mm-hmm. I don't like to get involved in any of that, you know, yeah. because yeah. look, at the end of the day, it's a difficult discussion because people have, people feel one way, people feel the other, but at the same time, I don't have any interest in getting into any kind of trouble or anything like that. So just for me, it's just not, it's not worth it, but it's interesting how there's so many common denominators among every exotics hobby. And it's, I, the the whole, I mean, I'm still taken aback by the whole morph thing. It's like, it really is. It's like everything else. I mean, with, with dark frogs, we don't really have morphs per se. We have locales and mm-hmm. you can have many, many different locales and different variations of the same species. Like some of the Renatomaeus species, they can, like Imitator, they can have like an innumerable number of different color varieties. And it could be based on a population that is in, lives in an area the size of like a football field or half of a football field. So I can definitely understand the, the collector's bug. Oh, that was a bad pun. <laughs> that was bad. I could see the collector's bug definitely being a motivation for someone who wants to keep isopods yeah yeah absolutely all right 
What I really want to know, and this is the question I've been saving, is rubber duckies. Tell us about rubber duckies. Because if, if anybody yeah. out there is listening, you haven't seen pictures of these guys. It's They look like little, they've got like yellow little duck bills on them. They do. They're they're the cutest things. They've got brown bodies and yellow heads with like little orange bills. And they, they legitimately look like a little rubber ducky. But if it were a roly-poly like that's that's what they are and they're amazing um those guys came over uh i want to say like 2016 2017 i may be way off but fairly recently from thailand um and they're just they're adorable those are definitely um they've been in very high demand ever since they've been here and they do breed slow they've got slow or they, they breed slow and they have small brood sizes um so that that demand has has stayed pretty high. Um, the price has come down pretty significantly on them, but um, they're still definitely one of the top collector species. Would you keep them the same as you would any other relatively like humid species? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they definitely like it more moist um, than some of the other ones. You know, you got to make sure you give them a lot of stuff to get up off the substrate on, um, and that's true of any like the keeper species. But yeah, I mean, their their care is actually not that difficult. Really, there's not a lot of isopods that have super difficult care. But yeah, their their care is pretty simple. It's just you have to have a lot of patience. And with how adorable they are, it is kind of sad because they're not um, they're not very bold. So if you want to see them, you pretty much have to go flip over your bark, and then and then you find them, and then you look at them. But they're not like out and about a lot. They're not very surface active. I often wonder is like, is the hype real? Like, because that's, I mean, again, that's the one isopod species besides like peace scabbard and dwarf whites that I can identify. I mean, are they, yeah. are they really like as popular as they're made out to be? I mean, is it just, is it just because oh, of the name? Yeah. Because the name in and of itself is, is kind of endearing. Well, yeah. I mean, the branding is fantastic, but I mean, they really are. They're, they're legitimately adorable. Um, they're really, really cute. Like if somebody's on the fence about, isopods and if they like them i just get my duckies out and i was like i'm like all right look at these guys and then usually you can convert people right then and there like non-bug people non-reptile people like somebody's at my house and they're like i don't understand how you have all these bugs in your house that's what i show them yeah it's a crowd pleaser that's like for us it's like a white street frog which is yeah, like it's yeah. like a little green baby and it's just how could you they're not so like that fat and adorable <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. I love whites. They're they're adorable. They're pretty amazing. Are you keeping anything else besides the isopods? I do. Uh, we have, you know, we have a zoo. Um, so we've got all the, the isopods and the bees and springtails, and I keep some arachnids um, for the business. And then um, I also have um, a box turtle and a crested gecko. We have a dog, and we have runner ducks and a goose. And we have Nigerian dwarf goats and an alpaca. So, okay, it's, 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 you yeah, you win. You, you 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 beat me. <laughs> yes, the alpaca was definitely yeah. that was the gold. That what? Yeah, he's he's great. We found him on Craigslist because you can buy anything on Craigslist, including alpacas. Apparently, so that's wild. We I mean we have there's a there's a couple of places out here on Long Island. I mean, my, my backyard is like maybe like 10 foot by 20 foot. It's like comedic how small my backyard is. But there are some places out here that have, uh, th- th- there's a game farm on the eastern end of Long Island and there's another place lo- like locally. But 
they just like, they go crazy with the alpacas and the llamas. They're just like yeah. the, the biggest crowd pleaser. Yeah. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. We, we have 10 acres. We're out in the country. Um, and, uh, we actually got the alpaca, um, because they're real good guard animals. Like they'll let everybody know if there's something there that shouldn't be. And he'll like scare off coyotes and stuff like that. So it's nice that, you know, we don't really have to worry about the predators too much. And that's actually why we got the goose too, you know, so the, the alpaca, he's our land threat division. And then the goose is the aerial threat division. So he keeps an eye on like the hawks and stuff. <laughs> that's so. great. I'm just picturing them like patrolling <laughs> the grounds. <laughs> that's wild. It's, it's probably not very far off from what you're picturing. Uh, yeah, probably. I, I kind of have an idea and it's, it's definitely yep. something that I, 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 I approve of. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. I mean, in terms of being an isopod hobbyist, I mean, at, at heart, you're still a hobbyist. Like, how does the isopod hobby look at other hobbies like the dart frog hobby or the reptile hobby? Is there the same sense of community? I mean, does it like, is it an entity unto itself or does it kind of like piggyback on other hobbies? Um, it's interesting because it's it's all of the things that you just said. Um, the isopod hobby is is very overlaps a lot with just the general hurt hobby. You know, a lot of people keep isopods because they, you know, started them in their vivariums or whatever, and then kind of branched out. But the isopod hobby in itself is also just a really great community. You know, there's uh, a lot of Facebook groups and stuff just dedicated to keeping isopods specifically. And uh, it is, a, it's a really nice community. Everybody's very nice, very um, encouraging of new keepers, which is nice. I think that's possibly rarer um, in some of the other communities. So it's it's just nice to see. But yeah, there's a ton of overlap. I mean, like we said earlier, like I vend at reptile shows. I don't vend at, you know, isopod shows. So, you know, we are we are reptile support, basically. Do you ever think a day will come where there will just be arthropod shows or, or even just... Um... I would love that. I think they have that in Europe in some places. And I would just, I'd, I'd love that because, you know, we do have a lot of other arthropods, you know, the, the tarantula hobby is huge. Um, just arachnids in general, I think, uh, you know, eventually we'd probably support that the hobbies can support that. Yeah. One of the things that is, I mean, going back when I first, I first started going to expos around the early 2000s, the first one I went to, I think might've been 2002 or 2003. And the th at first it was just like, okay, it's like I'm in a gigantic exotics store here. I can get pretty much anything. I mean, some of the vendors even had mammals. Some of them had hedgehogs and whatnot. But mm -hmm. I, I found that the more that these communities tend to become entities unto themselves, the more, like, I don't, I, I'm not a reptile keeper. I don't, you know, I, I keep some reptiles, but I keep them as an, you know what I mean? I don't identify as being a reptile keeper as much as I identify with being an amphibian keeper. I mean, my reptiles are like, like my dogs. They just, I just keep mm -hmm. them around for fun. Do you ever think that like it could evolve into that where it would just be like, you know, there's going to be just amphibian shows, just isopod shows, just snake shows or, or what have you? You know, I don't know. Um, that's a really interesting question. I mean, we actually, we have a lot of shows just in our area here in Ohio. And that's always something I wonder every time a new show pops up is, you know, are we going to be able to support having another show? Like, does that, does that add to the community or does it kind of subtract? Um, so I don't know how that would work if you, if you split it up into the different hobbies. I, I just, I don't know. 
I don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, it's just food for thought. I, I mean, I yeah. just noticed, like, when, when legislation here in New York changed, they outlawed several species of large constrictors. So every expo out here essentially just became one big ball python expo. So yeah. if you were looking yeah. for anything other than a ball python morph, good luck. So mm-hmm. I found that a lot of the vendors that I was talking to, like at some of the arachnid tables, like some of the um, the vendors who work exclusively with tarantulas, it just seems like everyone's out of place because you have people that would go there just to buy spiders. You have people that would go there just to buy mm-hmm. snakes. Whereas like when I was younger, you'd go and it was kind of like a free-for-all. You went to get a little bit of everything because you wanted to have a diverse collection. I don't necessarily see people doing that so much anymore. People tend to be gravitating towards one group. Or maybe that's just me. I mean, again, I haven't been to an expo in over a year here, so I can't be too great of a, yeah. of an expert. But I mean, you, you see it. So what's it, what's it like? I think a lot of the people that we talk to, a lot of the people that come to the shows, at least here, really are um, kind of across the different hobbies. You know, we've got people that are, um, you know, coming for frogs and lizards, or you've got people that are coming for the arachnids. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people I see that, you know, they they come by, you know, and it's usually our regulars will come by and, you know, they'll say hi, and then they do their lap and they come back and they've just got a stack of things. You know, and, you know, you just went around and you bought five things and and now you've got all these new animals. So I don't know. I I think I think at least a lot of our patrons do overlap into a lot of the the different hobbies. Is there anything that you shouldn't do with isopods? And by that, I mean, like, are there any really bad husbandry mistakes or miscalculations in terms of setting, like picking the wrong cleanup crew? I mean, what are some mistakes that you'd want to avoid? Um, so, I mean, the number one thing I can think of is, you know, don't make it too wet, don't make it too dry. Um, picking the wrong cleanup crew, um, unless it's, you know, putting something that's actively going to harm your primary inhabitant, not a whole lot of things that you can do wrong there. You just might not have something that's as efficient as it could be, um, you know, or you could get them all eaten by your primary inhabitant. But, you know, make sure that you're using stuff that hasn't been in contact with pesticides if you're collecting your own leaf litter. Um, People don't always think about that. And also, if you're collecting from outside, um, you know, if you're collecting like leaf litter and and rotting wood and stuff like that, I definitely recommend uh, baking it in the oven before you put it in with your isopods. um, Because sometimes, you know, if you bring it in from outside and you put it straight in, you can introduce mites, you can introduce, you know, centipedes, things like that, that are going to actually prey on your isopods. So um, that's a big one. What would you recommend for a beginner? Like, say you had a younger person who was just starting out and wanted to keep isopods. What, what advice would you give that person in terms of being a beginner? Um, go out in your backyard and see what you can find first. Um, there are a lot of things, you know, if you go over and flip, flip a log, you know, you can find things like that. If if you're just looking to keep them, um, if you're a beginner, but you're looking specifically for a cleanup crew, um, get something captive bred. You don't want to bring something in from outside and put them in with your captive bred um, reptiles and amphibians and then introduce something to them that they would have never been exposed to because you can, you can get parasites or, you know, other diseases or stuff like that. So if you're going to use them for a cleanup crew, you know, buy captive bred. 
um, cleanup crews. If you're just a beginner looking to get into isopods, by all means go outside, um, flip over a, a log and see what you find. If you're looking to buy something, you know, stick with the lower priced things because those are generally going to be easier to care for. And also if you make a mistake, it's not as much of an impact on you financially. Um, there are a lot of really cool species out there that you can get for, you know, 10 to $20 for a starter colony. So you can definitely get, get started pretty easily. The more expensive species, I mean, I know we, we talked about rubber ducky, but are, are certain species more advanced and is like, is price a function to that? Or is it just rarity? Like what, like what's like the crown jewel of the isopod hobby in terms of like the most advanced or the most sought after or whatever? Yeah. So it's, it's both. It is both care and rarity. So What's been interesting is there's always that new thing. You know, when they were coming over pretty regularly, there were always the new things. Um, and even now, you know, and kind of back to what we were talking about, there's some that, you know, kind of been making the rounds on social media. And, you know, people are trying to figure out how do we get them? How do we get them? And I'm just hoping people get them legally. So those are always going to be more expensive, especially if you are bringing them in, you know, through customs and through U.S. Fish and Wildlife and USDA and all that stuff, because you've probably got people in the country of origin you've got people here and then you're shipping them overseas right so that is a lot of time it's a lot of work it's a lot of money so those come over you've got only so many of them and then either the people that bring them over keep them or they get distributed out to you know just a couple breeders and then you know so those people are taking on a lot of risk so so there's all those factors for like the new things over here in the states that go into making those really expensive and then you've also got the species that are just real slow growing you know they only have a few babies at a time you know some of these species they might you know pop out 20 30 babies and then some of them you know they might only have four so so you've got that combined with you know however many you actually end up with and then can you keep them alive long enough to then get them reproducing to the point where they can then you know continue to be re redistributed from there so all of that factors into the price on some of the the really expensive ones and in terms of i mean we talked a little bit before about like shipping and and whatnot and like being up on the you know on the up and up when it comes to shipping and mm -hmm. um i mean is there anything you want to add about that yeah, so um, just generally, real generally to be aware of, um, isopods are regulated by the USDA um, as plant pests. For the general hobbyists, um, that's not a huge concern. If you go locally and you buy them locally, you don't have to worry about anything. Where the regulations come into effect is if you're crossing state lines or if you're you know, going from country to country. Um, that is something I would never recommend hobbyists do. Um, that is something that you can get in a ton of trouble with. But crossing state lines, um, they are regulated. You do need permits. Um, if it's something that you're interested in doing, it is free. It can take a really long time, um, but it doesn't cost anything. Generally, for hobbyists, if you are buying something on the internet and the seller has a permit, you're good to go. You don't need anything. Um, so the seller should always have a permit. And then, like, I have an additional permit that allows me to receive things, you know, to my address. So, like, if another seller doesn't have a permit, 
but I do have a permit, I can legally receive that, even if they legally are not doing things correctly. But again, for the general hobbyists, you know, just make sure that when you're buying them, you're getting them from somebody that, that does have a permit and they're allowed to send it to you. For the most part, um, the states allow, you know, the generally the same things. Um, some of the states, you know, Florida, obviously, and I think like Louisiana and Georgia and Oregon, strangely, do restrict a number of species. So just, just something to be aware of. Yeah, Oregon is that one curveball state. So yeah, if, if I have yeah. listeners out there, just let me know why Oregon has these, like, there's no way that this stuff is going to become, an, you know, a, a, a pest in Oregon. Yeah, I'm always surprised when it's like, you have winter there. Why Why do you care? But apparently they do. So Well, axolotls yeah. are illegal in New Jersey here. Which is just crazy. I, I don't understand why that is, but <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. But is there a, like a bucket list species that you have? I mean, let's just say for argument's sake, there was one species in the world that you wish you could keep, but probably never will. Is there one that fits that description? There's, I mean, there are some right now that have been kind of, I think Malaysia has some really cool ones right now. There's like these tricolor ones that, that everybody's losing their minds about. Um, and those are really neat. I would, I would enjoy those. So hopefully somebody figures out how to, how to get those over here legally. But yeah, I mean, I have a lot and I really enjoy all of them. I was just thinking. Yeah, I was just thinking. I, I got to tell you, I love my zebras. I love my zebras. They're great. Yeah, sometimes it's not always the most like outlandish thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I've seen certain, I've seen pictures of certain frogs that I don't know that the general hobbyist would even be aware of. And some of these things are incredible, but I still like my common regular everyday hobby staple species i just yeah exactly I what I, well they're staples for a reason right yeah yeah they just yeah they look impressive and they're generally just fun to keep we also talked before off air a little bit about millipedes now you also work with millipedes right i do yeah which species of millipedes are you working with um so i've got a lot of the uh, native ones, the um, bumblebees, I have uh, quite a lot of. Um, those are a lot of fun. And then I have some of the more exotic ones um, that have been captured bred here. Um, millipede species in general have been hard to get a hold of because they, they're not imported anymore. So it's really just, you know, whatever is able to be captive bred here or wild caught here. Um, so I really focus on the captive breeding. So any millipedes that I have that are available, it's, you know, something that is bred here in my home and, you know, you know, about how old it is and, you know, where they came from and they're adjusted. Because a lot of the wild caught millipedes, like they've, they've been through a lot and plus they tend to collect them when they're really big, which means they're also really old. So I think encouraging the captive breeding of the millipedes, I, I don't know if it's going to catch on, but I, I really hope it does um, because I think that leads to better specimens in captivity do you keep them as cleanup crews as well or just solitary i i do not um so definitely keep them in, in like colony environments um but for cleanup crews they're really difficult to use um because they are very dependent on nutrition 
of the substrate, like they need a really nutritious substrate and it's hard to maintain that in a bioactive setup um, because usually that's like a, a very like permanent type of setup, not always, but you know, if you're, you're making like a live planted vivarium or something, it's going to be really hard to, to keep all the layers of your substrate nutritional enough for millipedes. Um, so yeah, I, I keep them by themselves. That's usually what I recommend people do. Um, some people keep them as clinicers, but I just, I think it's difficult and they don't breed fast enough really to, to be effective. And since you can't keep them with isopods, it's not like you can keep the millipedes and the isopods, you know, as an effective cleanup crew. So I usually just recommend going with the isopods. Uh, that's a good point because I've heard about people keeping them together as cleanup crews. And I was always curious about why anyone would, would do that. I mean, I, to me, it would seem like either one or the other or I don't know, mm -hmm. both didn't make sense to me, but when you said nutrition and the substrate, like, what do you mean by nutrition? Like what, what is the, the diet of a millipede consist of? Um, so the millipedes, um, are decomposers, same as the isopods. Um, but they need a lot more like rotting wood component to their diet. With the isopods, like you can get away with just giving them leaf litter. With the millipedes, they need that leaf litter, but they also really need that rotting wood component. Um, so with the substrate, like the substrate that I use, it's already got that rotting wood component and then I'll, I'll add additional in as well, but it needs to be, it needs to be nutritious for them, like all the way through the layers, especially if you're breeding, um, because the babies, when they hatch, like they're not going to come right up to the surface right away. Like they basically have to be able to f find food right where they are when they hatch and then they go through a molt or two and then they're kind of more mobile and, and they go around from there. So just from like a life cycle perspective, they just need like that real nutritious substrate. Do you have a preference in terms of which type of wood that you would, that you would use? Uh, it just needs to be hardwood. Okay. So no pine, no pines, no cedar. Yeah, no pine. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you're collecting it, um, when you go out and you find it, it needs to be soft enough that you can break it apart with your hands. Okay. How long does it take? Let's just say a colony of what, maybe like 20 millipedes. How long would it take them to break down? Uh, a piece of wood that would fit into like a six quart bin. Like how long would that take? Oh, it takes them a long time. Yeah, it takes them a long time. Like my bumblebees, I have a couple colonies of those guys and um, they breed really well. So I'll end up like, I'll get baby booms where I've got, you know, a couple hundred at a time. Um, and so after that, I'll go through and I'll actually completely change up my substrate because, you know, they just turn it into millipede poop, which is just dirt. Um, but that is no longer nutritious. So, um, so usually, you know, once a year or so with those guys, I'll, I'll do a full substrate change. And then of course I can't throw out my substrate because, you know, there might be babies or eggs in it. So then I just have bins of old substrate that I go through periodically and go, Oh, still babies in there. And then, you know, I just keep dirt forever, basically. <laughs> just, I often wonder like what the detritivore was like, okay, well, millipedes eat rotting wood and, and, and isopods eat poop and sodium spring. Mm -hmm. What eats their poop? Nothing really. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just dirt, you know, it's, it's really just dirt at that point. I guess it's just gotta yeah. be the bacteria and the fungi that, yeah. that live in the yeah. soil, but I don't know. It's this, it's the circle of life, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What are some more popular species of millipede that people would keep as a, I guess as a pet, I mean, or just as a display specimen or whatever. Yeah. Um, so like the good beginner species are going to be, um, I really like the Florida ivories. Um, they're really, 
Um, they're very surface active, um, so you actually see them a lot. You don't have a, a box of pet dirt. The bumblebee millipedes are really nice. They're a little bit smaller, um, but they're they've got like that that yellow and black banding and red legs, which is really cool. Scarlet millipedes, and like all of these are from Florida. Um, scarlet millipedes um, are probably they're well they're not the smallest that you can even make captivity, but um, they're they're fairly small, but they're they're cute. They're like a like a rusty red color, um, and they're real easy to keep as well. And then there's like the the native North American species, um, Nurses Americanus, um, which I've been told we can find here. I've never actually found them on my property, which is sad. And then uh, Nurses Gordinus, which are the smoky oak millipedes, um, are are nice and easy too. Something to keep in mind with millipedes is, you know, they have two defense mechanisms, curl up in a ball and secrete a smelly liquid. And that's what they've got going on. Um, some of them make that secretion more than others. Um, I've never had an ivory millipede or a bumblebee millipede secrete on me, but my smoky oaks, um, when I go in their bins, I actually wear gloves because <laughs> it's like you touch them and your hands are orange. So, um, and you know, I have a lot in my bin, but even if you're just keeping one or two, um, that's something to keep in mind. It's it's not irritating like to the skin for most people unless you're like specifically allergic to it. Um, but it can be kind of annoying. So just something to be aware of when you're keeping millipedes. Because a lot of people are surprised by that. They don't know that they can do that. I, I had heard that a certain species actually secretes something that is like a derivative or of cyanide. cyanide. Yeah. Yeah. Some of our native species, some of the native, um, oh, I don't remember what the scientific name is, but they call them um, cherry millipedes here. They're like a, a black and yellow flat-backed millipede. Um, again, I've never found one on my property, which is sad. Um, but yeah, those guys, um, they actually, they their secretion is cyanide-based and smells like cherries. That's crazy. Yeah. But but totally not like like not cyanide to the point where like it would actually hurt a human person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know. But en yeah. enough that it's like I, I I mean, going back a while, I had the giant African uh I don't even I I I'm terrible with the scientific name of certain arthropods, but these were the really, really large ones that were imported from Africa. And yeah, yeah we Archospirus streptus gigas. I'm sure I butchered that. That doesn't matter. That sounds yeah. that sounds about right. Yep. <laughs> Um, well, I had, I had two of them. I mean, for anybody out there who's listening, um, they don't, you can't really, you can get these, but I mean, Rachel, you told me that they cost like a lot of money if they're captive. A bread, lot and that's of money. the only yeah. way that you can get them, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Correct. I mean, going back, you used to be able to get these things at expos relatively inexpensively for like maybe 20 years ago, you could get maybe two of them for 30 bucks, maybe $20 each. Mm -hmm. And I, I had them in my basement. And, uh, my, my in-laws were over and these, one of the millipedes had, I mean, these are, these guys were big. These are probably like, what, like six, seven oh, they're like inches. they're like 12 inches. No, they're like 12 inches. Mine yeah, didn't get that big. Full -grown wow. Yeah. Full grown adults. Uh, I can speak full grown adults can get 12 inches. Oh, yeah. really? Mm -hmm. Well, these were, I had them in a small kind of aquarium and, uh, one of them was, was crawling along with the, the screen top and, for some reason, one of my in-laws decided it would be a good idea if he went over there and ran his finger across it. And I mean, this guy, he wasn't a nice guy, but, um, and the millipede it fell because he, when he ran it across his legs, it, it, you know, it fell cause it was like a little zipper. Yeah. And I said, you know, those things secrete cyanide, right? Oh man, <laughs> did he panic? It was, 
<laughs> it was great. It was great. But I, I don't I don't like when people do stuff like that. And um, yeah. it I gave he had something to think about after that. But um in any event. So what are some like what are some caveats to millipedes like besides like the substratum is there anything else like are they generally humid or are there any of their dry species mm-hmm. yeah i know they're they're generally humid um there are some uh there's there's a desert species that um is pretty prevalent in the pet trade um those are all wild caught um nobody's been able to successfully breed them in captivity i mean like one or two people maybe once but and those guys do you like it a little drier but you still can't keep them totally dry like millipedes in general definitely need high humidity you know damp substrate all the way through um you know when we talked about the isopods i said you know i keep one half moist and one half dry with the millipedes it's just damp all the way through you don't want to oversaturate it but but you definitely want it to be damp all the way through all the layers of your substrate and you also want your substrate to be as deep as your longest millipede um, they really need that that room to burrow, and when they go to molt, um, they will dig real far down. And you also do not want to disturb them when they're molting. Um, it can take them a really long time. I actually had Florida ivories, two of them, take five months to molt. And I know it did because they were the only ones I had in that enclosure. I had them in, I think, with scarlets or bumblebees at the time because um, you can keep different species with the same um care requirements together and i thought that they were dead and i hadn't seen them for five months and then all of a sudden they both pop out and they're just like huge and fat and happy and it it just took them forever took them forever to mold so sometimes keeping millipedes really is keeping a box of pet dirt (laughs) do they do they leave a complete molt behind or will they leave an exoskeleton behind they don't it's usually pretty broken up um they do leave it behind but it's like yeah, it's it's pretty broken up into pieces yeah, i'm just picturing what it would look like you know just mm-hmm. just wish it is cool like every now and then you'll catch one molting you know if they if they molt more up towards the surface or if they're like under something and it is really neat to see do they need calcium the way isopods do um i think it's good to give it to them um there's some debate on how beneficial it actually is for him but i always offer it and i figure if they don't eat it then it doesn't hurt anything and silly question i did this just i i think i already know the answer to this but you don't need to provide a standing water source right like a dish or Correct. anything like that okay, okay yes yeah i in fact it is a hazard um for isopods and millipedes in general um obviously if you're keeping like as if you're keeping a cleanup crew in with an animal that needs a water dish then you know they need a water dish um, but, uh, they, they will drown. So if you have to have a water dish in there, it's always good to give them something that they can get up on to get out of the water dish. But if you're just keeping, you know, isopods or millipedes or whatever, no water dish. Yeah. I can't, I couldn't imagine that being a good idea. Just, I've, I've heard yeah. other people say that you have to, I'm like, that can't make, that can't be, they, they'd fall in no, and no. they'd drown. Yes. Uh, I mean, are there any species that you're looking forward to working with in the future? I mean, are you going to branch out? into different species of isopods or other other arthropods in general? Is there anything that you have on the horizon? Um, so I just started working uh, with regal jumping spiders, um, which I'm really enjoying. I also keep um, ornate harvestmen, which are like daddy long legs, like fancy daddy long legs. Um, so there's some arachnids I like working with. 
I don't know how much I'm going to branch out from there, but I am really enjoying the jumping spiders. Um, I just had a clutch hatch a couple days ago, um, a second clutch from this female. And uh, yeah, they, they've been a lot of fun. They have a ton of personality. I actually have them sitting on my desk um, and they like watch me while I work and stuff. So it's good times. I run into them. The, the The property that I work on is is almost 100 acres and it's all pretty much untouched since the 1920s. And I run into jumping spiders like almost all like all summer mm-hmm. I run into them and it's amazing just watching them because they have little like almost like little personalities and they've got those binocular do, eyes yeah. that you can kind of look at and they, they they follow you they pay attention yeah yeah they're actually aware of you and what you're doing which which is kind of unusual I think yeah certain animals just have that again I, I it's I can't quantify it because there's really no mm-hmm. evidence for it or or against it but you just you can you interact with them in a way that is what's the word I'm looking for? It's mutual. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you're just, yeah, exactly. when you're just staring at something that's completely passive and it's not acknowledging your presence there, that's one thing. But when you interact with another living thing and it's, it's aware that you're there and it's interested in you just as much as you are with it. It's to, to me, that's, that's an enjoyable experience. Yeah. Yeah. And the jumpers are definitely like that. Plus they're, they're, they're cute enough that sometimes you can convince people that are scared of spiders that, you know, okay, maybe these spiders are okay which is always a, a personal victory for me. Always. Yeah. And the coloration, always. the coloration is nice too. That, that oh, definitely yeah. helps. So, yeah. Well, I mean, we're kind of getting down to the end. I mean, is there anything that you wanted to add before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. Why don't you tell us about your, um, you know, where people can get in contact with you and I mean, you have a website, right? I do. Um, it is www.petpeedsandpods.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah, you can come see us at a show in Ohio. Uh, our show schedule is always up on the website as well. Great. What are, what's the next upcoming show that you have lined up? Uh, we will be at the Northeast Ohio Reptile Show this Sunday, and that is in Girard, Ohio. All right, everyone. Rachel Schindler from, uh, it's is it Pet Peds and Pods or Peds and Pods? Pet Peds Pet and Pods. Pet Peds and Pods. Okay, Pet Peds and Pods. Cool. I learned a lot. Rachel, I want to thank you so much for being on this show. It's been a real pleasure. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out Rachel if you run into her at an expo. And if you guys are into isopods or whatnot, she's got a lot of great information up on her website. Catch up with her show. I'm sure she can answer any of your questions. So until next time, I want to thank you guys for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon.